So the readings today come from Acts chapter 18, verses 1 to 4, and then 18 to 28 in your Bible, and then um, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 to 9. First reading can be found on page 1052. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath, he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. Verse 18, Paul stayed on in Corinth for some time. Then he left the believers and sailed for Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. Before he sailed, he had his hair cut off at Cancria because of a vow he had taken. They arrived at Ephesus, where Paul left Priscilla and Aquila. <clears throat> he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to spend more time with them, he declined. But as he left, he promised, I will come back if it is, if it is God's will. Then he set sail from Ephesus. When he landed at Caesarea, he went up to Jerusalem and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time in Antioch, Paul set out from there and travelled from place to place throughout the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervour and taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. When Apollos, went, <clears throat> when Apollos wanted to go to Achaia, the believers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. When he arrived, he was a great help to those by grace, those who by grace had believed, for he vigorously refuted the Jews in public debate, proving through the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. And then if we go to 1 Corinthians 1, it's found on page 1080 in your Bibles, verses 1 to 9. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God for you, 
because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way, with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge. God, thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you, Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will also keep you firm to the end, so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, who has called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is the word of God. Thanks, Julie. Uh, so I'm going to ask uh, David to come up now. Reverend Dr. David Instone Brewer, who I believe you worship locally in Hardwick, Hardwick Evangelical. So that's where the connection came. And you're a senior research fellow at Tyndale, Ta- Tyndale House. I don't know how to say it. So I'm going to pray for you and then I'll hand over to you. Heavenly Father, thank you for David, uh, for the words that uh, you've given him to bring to us. I pray that you would um, inspire him in his preaching and open our ears uh, to see to hear what you have to say to us. Amen. Now I bring you greetings from Hardwick Evangelical Church just down the road. Uh, that's where I live. And uh, yeah, I remember Nick Slater in our Sunday school, a very young boy, and now he's starting to lose his hair. Hmm. <laughs> so that must mean that I'm getting old too. And uh, Tyndale House, where I work, is a a biblical studies research centre. I have the best job in the world there. They pay me to study the Bible. (laughs) I I wanted a picture of Hong Kong because uh, Hong Kong, in many ways, was like uh, Corinth. It was a place overtaken by the enemy, the British, and transformed. And so everyone wants to be like the British. You see there some of the Chinese people uh, in a bank between the wars. Uh, They want to be like the British, so they're dressing in the proper business suit, except for this uh, one on uh, on the right-hand side, sorry, on your left, uh, who clearly wants to remain Chinese. And there's some other people in the wider crowd who want to remain Chinese. But uh, people want to be British because they're the ones who've beaten them, and they must be the best, and therefore they they will emulate the whole of the British culture. And we lost a whole lot of Chinese culture as a result. Uh, this picture is actually um, uh, of my father. He's, he's the stickler with the wing collar and the spats, the top hat on his knee. Uh, he's uh, representing the old school. And he, uh, he was there so he wouldn't have to fight in the First World War. Uh, there's clearly a mistake with a time machine somewhere because I'm not that old. But uh, <laughs> <that's> <laughs> The, the um, Corinth was like that. It was a place which had been taken over by the Romans. The Corinth was, first of all, very important because of the terrible weather that you get at the bottom of the isthmus. You don't want to take a ship round there uh, when you're going from Turkey and the rest of the east to Rome and uh, Italy, where everyone wants to go. So instead of taking your ship 200 miles down there, you go across the tiny little isthmus where Corinth is. So let's, let's see what that looks like. Just, it's just a four-mile little break there, and uh, it's... Uh, much quicker, much cheaper to take your um, boat across there. And uh, e- even if you have to unload it and load it on the other side, 
And what they did was they built a paved causeway across that four-mile stretch so that you could run your uh, wagons across it, or you could even take your ship across it. You put rollers down on the ground, take the whole boat across from one side to the other, and you've saved yourself 200 miles of very bad weather. So the Corinth was, became a very, very important crux, uh, central hub for the, the, uh, the whole of that area. Nowadays, you can see you can get a boat through, they cut a channel down, uh, and uh, you can actually float your boat through, though I think the paintwork suffers. In um, 146 BC, the Romans came along and they demolished Corinth. They, beat, uh, they besieged it, they uh, conquered it, and they demolished it. But then they rebuilt it. Uh, in 44 BC, Julius Caesar came and, with lots of money, uh, made Corinth into a beautiful new city, made it into the administrative hub of the area, and made it the... the the, the love of its new citizens. Uh, let, let's uh, have a look as we go into the city. And here we are approaching the gates. And uh, yeah, there's, there's the beautiful new houses that uh, Julius Caesar has built for us to live in. We're going to love him. Up on the top on the hill there, you see the Acropolis where the, the most important temples are. But uh, you also have temples down here in the city. Uh, the Temple of Aphrodite was very, very important in Corinth. So you've got lots of temple prostitutes. There's lots of enjoyment there. And uh, administrative centers here on the left and the right leading through into the forum. Uh, forum isn't just a marketplace where you buy your vegetables. It's a big open space where you can go and meet with people. You uh, uh, do your political campaigning here. You do your gossiping here. You meet everyone that's uh, important in Corinth because it's the most important city in this area. And uh, you love the Romans because they gave you this beautiful city. And Julius Caesar also made sure that many of his veterans, his army veterans, got plots of land around Corinth. And so they were able to fill the place with people who established the Roman culture as well as a love for Rome. And so the Roman, the Roman Empire spread all around the Mediterranean. Uh, it's uh, North Africa and Palestine and Turkey. So the, the army veterans came from diff many different nationalities, many different cultures, and they brought everything into Rome. And the, there's a big mix there. And, of course, from Rome and from Corinth, everyone went out. Everyone went through Corinth to everywhere else. So this was a superb place for Paul to stop for 18 months, establish a strong church which would spread the gospel to anyone who's coming through that city. Sailors in particular, of course, because when the boats are going through, and then sailors will take that message with them to the next city where they're going. But Christianity is clashing with the Roman culture. And Corinthians, as we're going through Corinthians, we're going to find lots of different aspects where Paul is having to say, hey, the Roman culture isn't right. We're going to have to stand up against it. And the Roman culture is bringing all sorts of problems with it uh, to this city. So don't, don't regard Corinth as a Greek city. Uh, maybe they sp uh, spoke Greek more than Latin, but that's, and Paul definitely wrote in Greek because he was writing about religious things. Greek was used for religion, like Latin used to be used for religion. Uh, but uh, this is a Roman city with Roman problems. So in, in the first few chapters that we're going to be looking at in Corinthians, he's dealing with celebrities. If you're going to be a celebrity in a Roman culture, you're going to be like me. 
You're going to be a speaker up the front. You're going to be explaining things to people. You're going to be persuading them. And above all, you're going to have wonderful rhetoric. You'll be able to employ all the skills of moving people's hearts, moving their minds, changing them to your opinion. You'll learn how to move your hands. In, uh, I don't know how to do that, so I keep my hands to myself. Uh, and you'll also learn how to use uh, um, expansion, how to use contraction. It's uh, one of the R's which you would learn at school. Uh, you didn't just learn reading, writing, arithmetic. You learned rhetoric. Rhetoric was one of the very important R's that you learned at school because it's what made you get on in life. Unfortunately, Paul was rubbish. He was no good at this Greek rhetoric and that uh, the Romans loved so much. And uh, he just uh, didn't know how to present himself. He was also ugly, which didn't help. And we saw in the um, reading in uh, Acts that just before he went to Corinth, he shaved himself bald. And seeing as Romans put great stock on their fancy haircuts, this was not a good move. So Paul arrived in Corinth with a great number of disadvantages, and uh, he was not welcomed as a great celebrity. Unfortunately, Apollos, who we also read about in Acts, he was superb at rhetoric. He knew how to speak. He knew how to use all the, all the gestures. He'd learned his subject. And best of all, he looked good, I think. We don't actually know that from scripture from the ancient world. But I'm sure he was really handsome. <laughs> because in the church, people started saying, hey, I'm not for Paul. I'm for Apollos. I'm, I, I'm with him. And other people say, no, 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 I'm with Paul. No. Peter, and it started splitting the church up. A very, very big problem that's dealt with in chapters 2 to 4. In chapter 5, when you're going to get into Corinthians, I, I don't get it. You get, you're going to deal with all these interesting subjects, and I'm not going to be dealing with them. Other people get to do it. In chapter 5, the immorality of the city was because of the Roman culture. Rome didn't just have uh, Aphrodite's temple with prostitutes, it would have had brothels all over the place, about double the number of pubs that we are used to in our culture, they have brothels. And they were well frequented, they were normal places for a man to go to, uh, men, not women, uh, men uh, were expected to uh, use all their organs. And uh, it, it, you learn that right from childhood. As soon as you become around about 14, your parents would give you a ring to wear. Uh, we've got lots of these left over. You can see them in museums, so usually they're put away in drawers uh, because the insignia on the ring is usually an erect phallus to remind the boy what his duty is in life, to spread his seed. And when he gets married, well, where after you're married, you just don't bring your mistress home. She doesn't spend the night at your house, but you can have as many as you like. And uh, if you're not rich enough to have mistresses, there's lots of brothels. The Roman culture was extremely immoral, and Paul has to address this. And the people in the church were no better than the people outside the church. He, he decides to pick on one person who was sleeping with his mother, let alone all the other things that were going on with the Christians in the church. Uh, it was a very, very big problem that Paul had to address. Uh, then chapter 6, Paul's uh, uh, talking about something completely different again, the way in which the Romans would sue each other in court. The Roman um, society encouraged this. If you saw someone doing something criminal, you sue them, and you take out a, a private prosecution against them. If you win it, 
you get half of their goods or half of the profits they made, and then the, the state gets the other half of the fine. Uh, and you can get rich doing that. So you start suing people who haven't really done very much wrong or maybe just slighted you or stood on your foot in the forum, uh, and you get, get compensation, you make rich. And Christians were doing that against each other. And Paul says, no, have nothing to do with that part of the culture. He didn't say, don't use the Roman system of law. The Roman system of law is wonderful. But don't go and use this vexatious litigation, which was so common. Another part of Roman culture was divorce. So you don't stay married very long. As soon as you get fed up with someone, you, you separate. And it, it, divorce was so easy. If, uh, if you want to divorce your husband, you pack your bags and walk out of the house. And that's it. No paperwork, no swearing before a judge. You don't even have to tell your husband uh, when he come, comes home in the evening, he finds you've gone, uh, left a note, bye, you're divorced, you can get remarried. Uh, or if you're the man and you happen to own the house, you can say, sorry, wife, out, you're not my wife anymore. Uh, I've decided. And that's it. And Paul confronts uh, a woman in 1 Corinthians 7 who's walked out on her husband and uh, has divorced him effectively in Roman law, and he has to say, no, 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 try and get reconciled, and uh, try, try and heal this. And he tells them, no, that being married to a non-Christian is not a reason for divorcing someone. You can be married to a non-Christian. That's just as sacred a marriage vow as marrying a, a, a Christian, because you probably got married before you became a Christian. Uh, he's having to face all these different parts of Roman culture one by one as we go through Corinthians. In chapters 8 to 11, he's facing the problem that um, the welfare system in Rome was based on fellowship groups. If you're a cobbler, you belong to the cobbler's fellowship group. If you're um, a silversmith, you belong to a silversmith's fellowship group. Or you might belong to the, the fellowship group that lives in this particular area of the town or has this particular interest, uh, this particular hobby. You group yourselves together in fellowship groups so that when someone's bereaved or when someone's ill and they can't work or when someone's child is sick, then everyone clubs together to help them out. And that, that's how welfare worked in Roman society. But in order to make that fellowship group cohesive, you meet together for meals on a regular basis. And the cheapest place to meet for meals is in a temple. Temples all had dining rooms. The meat was very cheap because it was contributed. Once it's been offered on the altar, it's ready for cooking. Uh, and uh, the, the, you maybe you have the priest come in to say a blessing or something, but you're not there for a religious purpose. You're there for this meal which, by which you make that fellowship group cohesive. But, of course, Christians can't do that. They, as Paul says, how can you go and eat the, the table belonging to demons? So he says, no, don't do that. You can't meet with those people. But now, suddenly, you have no welfare system. You have no fellowship group to help you out. So Christians had to create their own fellowship groups. And so that became very, very important in Christianity and the church, a fellowship group that's, uh, of Christians. But they're different because in all of you having a common interest being silversmiths or all of you um, liking each other and living in this place or all of you being uh, this particular class. There's all sorts of people in it. Everyone from a slave to really rich people having to meet together in one group and be cohesive. And uh, in chapters 8 to 11, Paul deals with a lot of this problem of different parts of society meeting together. And uh, that goes on into chapters 12 to 14 where you've got the class divisions of Roman society which are based on wealth. You have really wealthy people at the top and really poor 
well, um, slaves don't own anything. They're not allowed to own anything. They are property themselves. All meeting together in one group. And uh, Paul there says about how we all have gifts. We're all important. We're all part of one body. And even that little toe that you don't wash very often is as important as the nose on your face. Uh, if you don't have them, the body is, not, is going to suffer. Uh, we're all just as important from the rich to the poor. And he gives special instructions as to how we're supposed to stay together and be equally important. And the biggest problem of all, he leads to chapter 15, how on earth are they going to preach a gospel of the resurrection in a society that can't accept anything like a physical resurrection? They believe in sort of shady afterlife in Hades, but nothing physical at all. And there's no way in which your physical body would ever be resurrected. And there's no way you'd have a physical body in the afterlife. Uh, and Paul has to try and preach Jesus' resurrection to a society that says, no, once you've died, once your blood has soaked into the sand, there is nothing. Your body is gone and we're just a shade. Uh, if, uh, if Christians had not had Jesus' resurrection to preach, they would have been able to spread the gospel much more effectively. Uh, the, this, this gospel was such a difficult thing to persuade people about in the first century. Jews, didn't, uh, Jews believed in a, a physical resurrection at the end of time, so not so difficult, but Greeks and Romans, nothing at all, nothing physical. And uh, I, I find it impossible to believe that Christians invented this story about the resurrection because you just wouldn't. It's the most difficult salesman's job ever. Okay, that's all the great things that you're going to have in Corinthians. But I don't get to talk about any of them, except <laughs> telling you a little stink of... But I thought to myself, hang on, what's missing? What's missing in Corinthians? Because I only get the, the first nine verses where Paul's saying, hello, hi guys, this is here, testing, testing, can you hear me? Uh, I, I, and that's it. Then, then uh, I have to stop. But what is it that's missing in Corinthians? What doesn't he address? For instance, these slaves, the foundation of the Roman economy and farming and households, he doesn't talk about them and say, hey, you know, you slaves, you should be free. He doesn't say anything like that that we would. Uh, he does say that all church members are of equal importance. That, of course, includes slaves. Uh, rich and poor together should be able to meet together and eat together. But that's it. Or women. W women and wives, they should be in submission in Roman society. They were underneath their husbands, uh, underneath the, the male person who represented them in court. They had no presence in legal status. Uh, and uh, they, they had uh, almost no education unless they fought for it and got it privately from their parents. Uh, they, they had no status. And Paul do doesn't stand up for them. And mind you, you will find out in, in chapter 12 that he's letting them stay in for teaching in the church. He lets them stay in for the teaching session. Uh, that's quite amazing because, of course, teaching sessions, they took place in the Androne, uh, in the synagogues and in uh, Greek uh, theatres and things. You know the, the name Androne? The men's room. That's where teaching sessions took place, uh, both in gymnasium and also synagogue and uh, Roman situations. That is the Androne, the men's room, where teaching sessions took place. And Paul said, yes, OK, come along, but stay quiet. I think we're going to get away with this. And he did. And the, the Christian women did get educated. And you find in the generation just after, well, in the second century, beginning of the second century, the first two leaders we know about, the ones that were interrogated by Pliny, 
uh, sort of interrogating them to find out what the church believed, they were female. The first two leaders we hear about. So the, the education system did work, and eventually it man, meant that you were able to have female leaders in the church. But uh, in Paul's day, it was really, really difficult, and he said nothing about it virtually. He just quietly got on with helping them. Militarism, he didn't say anything about that. Romans are really proud of their army, rightly so. It conquered everyone. Uh, they were the first army to get paid properly and uh, very proud of themselves. But that militarism, surely he should have said something against it because he's taking over the world with such violence. But all he says is, ah, well, we are fighting, but in a different way, in a spiritual way. We have a spiritual battle to fight. So that Paul's not saying anything about these other very, very important things in Roman culture. Why? I think he's like the parent of some teenagers. You pick your battles. <laughs> some are more important than others. And, okay, the piercing's there already. You can't do anything about it now. Should have seen it coming, but we didn't. We're just going to have to live with that one. You pick your battles. And you, you deal with the ones that you can win. And then I thought to myself, what are the battles that we've picked as a modern church? And I think we've picked some rather stupid ones. Evolution. We've decided to say, God made the earth in seven days, and whatever other scientists say, whatever that people find, however much evidence they find, he made it in a week. We're taking an idea which became popular in the 1800s and saying, the church has always said that. And of course, Augustine didn't say that. He said the six days were six different views of instantaneous creation. He was uh, even shorter than that. And there are many other views in church history. And we've decided we're going to lock in on this one interpretation of Genesis 1 and say, we're standing for the Bible. Well, we're just standing for one interpretation. A battle we can't win. Uh, we, sh we should not take it on. Uh, or the, 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 uh, one other issue that we're standing up for against homosexuality. Now, whatever you think about the practice, we should not be against those poor people who find themselves born in such a way they're not going to have children. You imagine that, knowing from your childhood that it's going to be impossible for you to have children because you're just not attracted to the other end of a reproductive line. And instead of standing up for the minority and saying, hey, we're going to care for this minority, we're the ones who are beating them up even more. And just when the whole of the world has suddenly realized, oh, actually, they're people too, we're, we're even more uh, against them. Whatever we think about the practices, we should be for the people and helping them. Uh, they're battles I don't think we should be fighting. But what battles should we be fighting? Well, what about, like Paul, where he says, all of society should be treated equally, the poor and the rich, so when you have a time when we need austerity in this country because of the terrible economic crisis a decade ago, who are we going to punish? Who's going to pay that price? We'll have to reduce the welfare, but no one is increasing the taxes. So the poor pay for our austerity, and those who have enough money don't pay any more taxes. Why is that? Because the poor generally don't vote. And Christians should be saying something out about that, like the prophets in the Old Testament speaking about equality in society. Or what about the rights to represent the Bible accurately in the media, in TV and radio and papers? 
we, we, we have wonderful historical programs on TV sometimes uh, talking about the ancient world, and then, when, then they bring out a Bible, and it's always a tatty old King James Version. Nothing wrong with the King James Version, but they're trying to show, well, here's an old book, and it's clearly out of date. It's clearly for another generation. It's clearly talking about things which we don't really care about anymore. And this is what they used to say. And they don't represent the Bible as a living book which speaks to us now and in vibrant tones if we use a Bible that's translated in today's English. And what, what's the third thing we should be standing up for? Any ideas? I'm not going to stress the third. I'm hoping that you're going to. What battle should we pick and fight for Jesus in this society? The environment. Yeah, we were one of the last ones to get on that bandwagon, weren't we? we uh, and in America, you still see lots of Christians saying, oh, fake news, you know, that we're not causing global warming and uh, we should be burning as much coal as, uh, as we can, yeah. Yeah, no, think about it. What battles should we be picking to fight? What is it that the Bible says? This is important, and this we must stand for. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that Paul went to Corinth and was able to face up to the Roman culture of the time. And we pray that you will help us too to see the culture that you've put us in and see us and show us which battles to fight. The people that we meet each day which issues to confront and which issues just to ignore. And help us, help us to show them that your love is real and that your son came for them too. In Jesus' name, amen.